Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12, uh, we are continuing our series as we were walking through this Gospel. And, you know, there is a really big difference between knowing that Jesus is Lord and following him as Lord. I would say that many people would recognize and say, yep, Jesus is Lord. That's true of probably a lot of you here today. But what does it actually look like to follow him as Lord? And certainly the lordship of Jesus was at the apex of everyone's attention. Just to remind you where we've been as we've gone through the gospel of Mark, we have gone to come to the place where Jesus is now at that final Passover On that Passover week, when estimated several million people would converge on Jerusalem, when Jesus made his entrance, it was like an unlike any other entrance. For he was riding on the foal of a donkey. People were calling out, Hosanna, son of David. They were putting coats before him, palm branches. They were waving. They were calling out this messianic title. Never once did Jesus say, wait, you got this mistaken. Uh, No, he actually received it because it was true of him. And that infuriated the Jewish leadership. They did not want Jesus. They didn't want him as Messiah. They didn't understand him. Most certainly, he was standing in their way of all that they wanted for their lives. And so what happened was they entered into a series of conversations, of tricks, of trying to trap him. And they were infuriated with Jesus because he came in on a Monday. On Tuesday, he goes to the temple and literally clears it, flips over tables, all their money goes scattering. He cleared the temple because they had treated the temple, the place where the nations are to gather for the worship of God, and turned it into just like a circus, a place where money was just being exchanged, where people were being ripped off, and it was just some religious charade and show. And just like he began his earthly ministry, so he finished it with clearing the temple, and that infuriated the Jewish leadership. That led to a series of confrontations where they asked questions meant to trick and trap him. But in every single instance, Jesus demonstrated his wisdom and his authority. He gave absolute clarity. He was demonstrating that he indeed is the Lord over all. And that led to an occasion that when they had finished asking their every question, Jesus asked them. And we saw it just a couple weeks ago, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. It all had to do with the identity of who really is the son of David. Now, they had assumed, yeah, we know the son of David. He's going to be in the line of David. But Jesus showed them from Psalm 110, verse 1, that he's not only of the lineage of David, he's David's Lord. He is fully God, truly man. He is the absolute Lord. And the same one who came in to Jerusalem to the cries, Hosanna, son of David, he showed them that indeed, I am this Lord. And the question is, how do you really respond when Jesus is Lord? It's one thing to know that he is, but how do you follow him as Lord? And that's what we see in these final, in, final instances of Jesus' public ministry. Beginning in Mark chapter 12, verse 38, we find key traits of those who are following Jesus is Lord. And the first one we see in verses 38 through 40 is that those who really are following Jesus as Lord are exercising discernment. They're guarding against false teachers who manifest hypocrisy, pride, and deceit. So take a look. Verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like 
respectful greetings in the marketplaces. First thing I want you to notice that he's teaching. You see, when you know Jesus is Lord, his words matter to you. You cling to them. You want to understand. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples. He is teaching with absolute authority, and he says something that is shocking to them. He says, beware of the scribes. Now, the scribes were the the Jewish lawyers of the day. They were those who had devoted themselves to the study of the scriptures. They knew it backwards and forwards. They were the foremost authorities. And Jesus said, you want to watch out for them. You want to guard against their evil influence. You do not want to imitate them, nor do you want to even be under their influence. And there are people who would have been shocked by a statement like this. Jesus is calling for discernment. They look really respectable on the outside, but Jesus says they have some significant heart issues. They're leading the nation and the people astray. It's kind of like uh, an actor that plays someone that's, someone, um, that's like got a lot of integrity, like great character, someone you would esteem and consider like really noble. But in actuality, the actor is vulgar, immoral, almost the opposite of what they portray on the screen. Jesus is pointing out there are some huge issues with the scribes. They have all the external observance, but they do not have internal transformation. I want you to know that prideful people make terrible leaders. Prideful people make terrible leaders. And their pride, their deceit, and their hypocrisy were leading the people astray, and Jesus is going to call them on it. And the first thing he points out there, he says, you know, watch out, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. And this was the attire of the scribes. They would wear these long flowing robes. Oftentimes they were white, which was to, to symbolize purity. And these garments were supposed to be worn while they were uh, in the synagogues, when they were taking leadership uh, at the temple. They were to be used to demonstrate purity, honor. It was meant to honor God and demonstrate holiness. And it was to be used in their times of worship. But what these scribes did is like, you know, these robes, they garner so much attention. We get so much respect when we wear these. We're going to start wearing them around town. Not just are we going to wear them uh, when we're leading worship at the synagogue or at the temple. We're going to just like start wearing these around. They're, they would go into public places. Now, it was already as, uh, expected that teachers would receive deference and, and people would honor them, respect them, uh, greet them. But they wanted more because their ego was all in this. And so what happens is they'd like, I'm wearing this all day. And they would go out into like the marketplaces and it was like an ego trip. They were just like flexing, kind of like a rapper that wears like, you know, a bunch of Gucci and Prada. It's all meant to just garner attention like, wow, look at that. Or it's like if a doctor would say, you know, my white lab coat, you know, I think, I think I'm going to start wearing this around town. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the store. And so like the gal, the doctor, she like, you know what? I'm going to slip this in, and I'm going to go shopping. And it's a whole new shopping experience, because why? Everyone's like, oh, well, there's the doctor, right? And that's exactly what they wanted. 
people to lock in and give them all sorts of attention and deference. And furthermore, Jesus said, not only do they do this and they show up with their flowing robes, but he goes on to say, verse 39, and they like the chief priests and the chief priests seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Not only to run around with their white garments and trying to get all sorts of respect and attention, but they like the chief seats at the synagogue. So in the synagogues, these are the places where the Jews would worship. They're throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, what would happen is they would have their scrolls, the sacred scrolls that had the scriptures. They were kept uh, in like large uh, boxes behind, in the front, uh, at the very front, and then they would have these benches. So behind these benches were the scrolls. And just one little guess, where do you think the scribes wanted to sit? I mean, if you're an egomaniac and you want a lot of attention and, you're, and religion's your game, where do you want to be? Right there, not on the side, not on the floor, not by the door. You want to be up front and you sit with your back against the scrolls, right? And everybody's looking at you and that's exactly what they wanted. Furthermore, when they weren't doing their little religious thing at the synagogue, uh, they would be trying to ace each other out for the top spots of honor at banquets. And so you would have the host, and the seats right next to the hosts would be positions of honor. And so they're like showing up with their white garments, you know, and they're probably flooring them around, you know. And then they're, they're showing up, and guess where they want to sit? Right there. Because not only would the host, of course, get the best of treatment, but if you were sitting next to the host, you got special treatment. That's exactly what they wanted. And furthermore, Jesus is not only describing their behavior, but notice what he says in verse 40 who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Devour widows' houses. He's using hyperbole. But what Jesus is driving at is that one of the roles of the scribes is that they were estate planners. And when, when widows would show up, it was their responsibility for no charge, they were prohibited for charging for this, to actually help them manage their estate, to do what is in their best interests. Some widows would actually dedicate themselves to the, to the worship of God and temple service, and they would entrust everything that they had, little or much, to these scribes. And did these scribes use this for the best interest of those widows? Apparently not. Jesus said, and they devoured widows' houses. They ripped them off. They took advantage of their hospitality. They were pretending and feigning to be all holy and, oh, I'll most certainly help you, but in actuality, they were working them over. They were deceitful. They were hypocritical. They were prideful. And it was all a show. Jesus goes on to say that, and they would offer these really long prayers not because they were so devout. It was all display. They were trying to garner attention to themselves. And Jesus said this. See how, what he said? End of verse 40. These will receive greater condemnation. These people, the ones that you hold so in such high esteem, 
who value your respect so much and garner your attention, they're going to face a greater judgment. I'll tell you, the primary ministry of a spiritual leader is the ministry of character. The primary ministry of a spiritual leader is the ministry of character. If you're a spiritual leader, you seek to serve people, not to impress them. James Denny writes this, quote, A Christian's character is the whole capital he has for carrying on his business. In most other callings, a man may go on, no matter what his character is, provided his balance at the bank is on the right side. But a Christian who has lost his character has lost everything. Deceitfulness will destroy your ministry and your testimony. And that's what Jesus is driving at. You see, integrity is essential because we represent God. Now, we're not perfect. The only one that is perfect among us is Jesus. We're imperfect. We need a perfect Savior. But you need to know that your life reflects the God you worship. And the outside watching world, what they really think about the one true living God is what they think about those who follow him. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is that these scribes, they had missed it. They looked all religious. They got the titles. They had the positions. But they indeed lack true integrity. You see, we need to make real sure that we're not deceived and that we take the character of our lives seriously. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he makes this statement. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. He tells Timothy, you want to pay close attention to yourself, who you are, your character, when no one's watching, and your teaching, your doctrine. And he says, persevere, keep moving forward in these things, keep growing, for as you do, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Is he talking about the salvation of your soul? No. Actually, in context, 1 Timothy chapter 4 begins with this warning about all these false teachers that are tearing the church apart. Verse 16, at the very end of chapter 4, he's saying the salvation is that you're going to save people from being destroyed by false teachers. But you've got to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. What is the key to developing a life of integrity? If you're like, you know, I, I do want to represent Christ well. I want to be a man or a woman that is true to my word. I've got character. I've got integrity. What's the key? I can give it to you. Real simple. It's just asking this question to the Lord. Lord, is this pleasing to you? Lord, is this pleasing to you? I will assure you, God will make it very clear whether or not what you're about to say, how you're going to act, uh, where you're going to go, what you're going to watch, what you're going to engage in for your entertainment, he'll make it clear. Lord, is this pleasing to you? Jesus says these people are dangerous. Now, we live in a Christian climate that's all about tolerance. 
The great themes today are unity and love. And I want you to know those are excellent themes. We, we really are about unity. And we most certainly are about love, but not at the expense of truth. And so what's happening today is like, well, you got folks that are teaching things that are absolutely false, contrary to the scripture, but like, well, man, we just want to love like Jesus, right? We just want to have unity, unity at all costs. And so you're just like, well, they just got a different view on that. That is not the approach of Jesus. Jesus called it for what it was. He says, they're going to receive a greater condemnation. They were leading people away from the truth, away from repentance from sin, away from genuine faith in Christ. They were pointing people really to the broad, wide way, and they were the star of the show. Jesus was calling people to the narrow way, the narrow way of trusting him and him alone, and they wouldn't have it. You see, they came across as devout, respected, and responsible, but in actuality. They were seeking popularity, prestige. They were after, above all, money and power. That's what they wanted, and Jesus said, steer clear. When it comes to spiritual leaders, what should you look for? What are the qualities that you should look for? Well, let me, let me just really, in a simple way, just present this to you. When it comes to spiritual leaders... You want to look at the character of their lives. Is this individual a person of integrity, of holiness? Do they show love, respect, and humility? You want to look at their character of their lives. Second, you want to look at the content of their doctrine. Is the Bible their authority? Do they believe that the Bible is is inspired, given to us by God? Do they believe it's infallible, fully trustworthy? Do they believe that it is inerrant, without error in its original autographs? If, if they don't hold to these things, you want to steer clear of them. These are false spiritual leaders. Look at the content of their doctrine. Does what they teach align with the clear teaching of Scripture, or are they really busy trying to explain away, like, well, the Bible says this, but it really doesn't mean this, and then they go on to some great explanation. Or what's happening today is that you don't actually cover hardly any doctrine. You never actually dive really deep into the Scripture because, well, people might believe something different, and they don't want to align their beliefs with the Bible, so if you do that, they might leave. And so what you do is you just kind of ignore it altogether. You sprinkle in a few Bible verses here and there, but you never actually get to core doctrine. When it comes to spiritual leaders, look at the content of their doctrine. And then third, look at the focus of their ministry. Is God, the glory of God, Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, is this really the focus of the ministry of the individual Or is the focus of the ministry themselves? It's really just about them, garnering attention for themselves, substituting their own personalities for the holiness of God. And I want you to know that what happens like in society where we just value celebrity and like they're everything to us and popularity, that is pretty prevalent in today's church. It's all about celebrity. And Jesus said, really, It's about me. So when it comes to spiritual leaders, you want to look at the character of their lives, the content of their doctrine, and the focus 
of their ministry? Is the focus of their ministry really the Savior, or is it star power, or scholar power, and they're the center of the show? Jesus confronted these false teachers, these scribes, and he said they will receive greater condemnation. Austin Duncan, the director of the MacArthur Institute for Expository Teaching, made this statement on a podcast that I heard. He said, self-obsessed audiences love to listen to a preacher who is self-obsessed. And that's what these scribes were. They were self-obsessed, and they were looking for people to garner attention to themselves. When Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, you know what you develop? Like he said, discernment. Guarding against false teachers who manifest hypocrisy, pride, and deceit. But let me show you something else. Another trait of those who are following Jesus as Lord is they have devotion. They're growing in a lifestyle of humility, generosity, and holiness. And in this final scene, this is the final scene of Jesus' public ministry. He drives home the importance of devotion with a picture that leaves an indelible mark. It is something that followers of Christ regularly think about. It's as if this is the apex of all of his teaching, focused on this one incident that takes place, beginning in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. So when Jesus finishes teaching, he's talking and standing. He goes and he sits down. He is in the court of women. At the temple, the court of women, that was the, that was the place, that, the closest that the woman, women could get to the temple. It's referred to as the court of women. But it was filled with people. And they had these 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles. And they'd kind of open up wide. And they were placed in this, uh, the treasury there, in the court of women. And the idea was, this is where you would make a free will offering of your finances. And so you would put these coins into this receptacle. Well, think of it. At the Passover, when you have several million Jews that are gathering, specifically focused at the temple, this would be a tremendous opportunity if you really wanted to put on a show. And apparently, that's what took place. Jesus is noticing, observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people, perhaps you could tell that by their clothing, but perhaps by the size of their offering, were putting in large sums. And so here you have these receptacles, there's 13 of them, and you have your like bag of money, and you've got to lift that a little bit higher there. And boy, when that hits all that metal, man, there would be a tremendous amount of noise the bigger the noise, people are like, whoa, what's going on there? And here you go, and here you got this guy, and he's putting in his offering, his free will offering. This isn't something that was required in the Old Testament. This is not a tax. This is a, a gift, supposedly, given to the glory of God, the furthering of his kingdom work. And people are like, whoa, look at that. And Jesus is sitting there, and he's, and he's, he's watching this. Nothing wrong with large gifts, but do you notice what the text says? He was observing how the people were putting the money into the treasury. And so every coin that would hit there would be amplified. Boy, but you had a lot of them. 
you'd have quite a noise and you'd garner a lot of attention. But then, in the midst of this, verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. In the midst of all these large gifts that were coming, nothing wrong with that, was this poor widow. Why, she would be identified by her clothing. I mean, to be a widow in the time of Jesus was to put yourself in a precarious situation. Uh, You would likely have no means of income. If you had no children, I mean, you were automatically probably going to be destitute. Or if your children decided, like, you know what, mom can fend for herself, I mean, it You were on your own. It would be rough. If you had entrusted whatever estate that you had to a scribe and they had already confiscated it basically and used it for their own purposes, you were destitute. But here is a poor widow. You see that? Verse 42. And she came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. You notice that Jesus is watching how people are putting in these offerings. It is profound, and it creates a great sense of awe and worship when we realize that Jesus sees everything. Do you know that he is always watching you? Not to watch you to see where you're messing up. He's always observing because he's always at work. You know, when we realize that Yesterday, when you were mowing the yard, or when you dropped the kids off at that activity, or as you're doing your work, do you know that he's watching? He's, he's right there with you. He sees all these things. He saw the folks that were putting on the show with the large gifts and the great announcements, and he saw this poor widow putting in these two coins. This is a, a beautiful expression. And you have to wonder, like, how did such a beautiful life come about. Certainly she had her share of struggles, right? I mean, she was a widow. That left a huge hole in her heart. Maybe she had a wonderful marriage, but maybe it wasn't even so great. Either way, there was this great absence. And where were her kids? I mean, she's poor. Did she, was she barren? Did she have no children? Or had her kids abandoned her and said, well, mom, you're on your own. Hope it works out for you. Either way, she had probably gone through great difficulties in life. Isn't that true of life? We all face serious challenges, hardships, difficulties. Even just looking around, I know some of you have deep burdens in your life. And I can tell you what can happen is they can lead to bitterness, a sense of resentment, fatalism, kind of an emptying of your soul, or... The challenges of our life can drive us to a deeper relationship with God and a sweetness of devotion. That's what happened with this woman. And here you see her. She has these two small coins. Uh, In the Greek, they were leptas, the smallest coin uh, in circulation. It it literally means like fine or peeling. It's like super small, very fine, hardly anything to it. It was the equivalent, uh, Alepta was the equivalent of six minutes worth of work for a day laborer, okay? Hardly anything. And notice, she shows up with these two 
soft, small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And notice what she does. In the midst of all the action and activity and everyone watching, here she comes. She's small and like with her head bowed. And she comes and she approaches and she just puts in her offering. Not for a show, because there's really nothing to show. But she does so because she is there not to garner attention, but to be pleasing to God, to express devotion. The only motive of her life is love. She is the one who's living out the Shema. Remember what the great commandment is? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. So she's doing it. Great delight. No one's forcing her to do this. She gives these two leptas. And Jesus, Jesus says this, verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors of the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Jesus says this, guys, guys, and they were probably distracted by the big showy gifts, you know? Like, whoa, look at this guy, he's dragging his bag. This is going to be good. And she's like, hey, guys, come here, come here. Yeah? See that? See that widow right there? Poor lady, you want to end up looking like her. This is the epitome of devotion. This is someone who is fully given over to the love of God, resting securely in his character. The great freedom and emancipation that comes when you're just saying, God, you are my everything, and all that I have is yours. And notice she gave all that she had to live on. That means when she gives those two little leptas, those two little coins, paper thin, they kind of make their way, she doesn't have any resources for her next meal. She is completely entrusting herself to the Lord. You know, authentic faith always produces fruit. It generates action. Devotion always has an expression. And that's true with our money. You can see it. In fact, Jesus went on to say about money, he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So if I were to ask you, hey, where's your treasure? What are you immediately thinking of? Where, where's your treasure? Wherever that treasure is, that's where your heart is. It's a great indicator. And for this woman, her heart is fully given over to God. And I want you to know that what Jesus was watching was how they were giving their gifts. Did you remember that from verse 41? You see, the posture of our hearts makes all the difference. You know, when you give to the IRS, and when I talk about giving, I'm talking about paying your taxes, okay? Do you know that whether you give with like, you know, this is right and this is good, I have a sense of joy about doing this, or you're just like, oh, I can't believe all my hard-earned money is going to pay for some of these things that I am directly opposed to. I want you to know the IRS, the folks, the fine folks that work there, 
they could care less. They lose no sleep about your attitude about paying. All they're concerned about is that you do, that you pay your taxes. Whether you give willingly or grudgingly, not so with the Lord. With the Lord, the posture of our hearts makes all the difference. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, it says, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, think of it, everything you got to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is to be the great motivator. And that's what we see in this woman. Now, Jesus isn't discouraging the giving of large gifts. Not at all. He was actually watching that. What he's doing is he's honoring the generosity of gifts given from the heart, even the smallest of gifts. And what Jesus is highlighting and why he called his men and said, guys, pay attention. You want to end up looking like this? Is This is a picture of total devotion. This is what we want with our lives, with our resources, with our time, all that great talent that God has given you, your education, your experiences, that you have the idea that I want to live my life devoted to him. You know, it's interesting. Jesus pointed out that she gave all that she had to live on. But the one who gave all that she had to live on lives on. We're still talking about her today. I mean, think about this event took place about 2,000 years ago. And there were some tremendous gifts that were given that Passover. And they're noted right here, large gifts. But by far, the gift that presented the, far the, the, most, the greatest work was the gift given by this widow. It was the greatest gift because it came from the depth of her being. It didn't come from her surplus. It was an expression of everything that she had. And this woman's act of devotion and worship, it has resulted in billions of dollars given to the kingdom of God for the furthering of God's work and the worship of his name. It has inspired, motivated, instructed millions and millions of Christians because Jesus pointed her out and says, this, guys, is what you want to end up looking like. And their, their uh, devotion to Jesus was just about ready. They really get tested. Friends, generosity is one of the great gifts of God's grace. When we experience God's grace, it lends itself to expression of generosity and being gracious in our lives. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Our salvation is all of grace. You don't earn it. It's not by keeping the law. It's not even a church attendance deal. It's freely given to us by God. And this grace that we receive is to have an expression through our lives. That's why he says in the very next verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This has been God's divine design from the beginning, that we, those sinners, will be those who experience his grace and express it. And will these workmanship, masterpiece, that God's glory, his grace, is being expressed through our lives just like 
this widow. If you're here today and you're trusting in riches, let me just tell you how this ends up. It leads to anxiety, self-centeredness, dissatisfaction, arrogance, uncertainty, and restless greed. Because this is your God, and you're going to do everything you can to hold on to it. You want more, because it's really, it's, it's everything to you. But it's going to leave you completely empty. And it'll contort you and distort you in ways that you would have never imagined. But on the other hand, if you were trusting in God, it leads to peace, service to others, satisfaction, humility, certainty, and contentment. You know, maybe you do most of your work online when it comes to your finances. From time to time, when you see like, whoa, I, that, that was my paycheck. Or you're looking at your portfolio. Or you've received some sort of gift. Thank God. Wow, thank him. And say, God, I want you to feature first in my life. I want to experience and express devotion to you. I don't want to be owned by these resources. I want to know and rest in the goodness of you. And when it comes to, to giving, you may have heard like, well, there's, you should give 10%, a, a tithe. Actually, the New Testament emphasizes grace-motivated giving. 10% is a good goal, and many healthy Christians give 10% of their income for the furthering of God's work. But really, it's about grace-motivated giving. How are you receiving and experiencing and knowing God's grace in your life? I want you to know that the more you fall in love with God and his grace, the more it's expressed in your life. And I want to thank you for being a church, living and experiencing and expressing God's grace. I want you to know that giving at fellowship is totally anonymous. No one knows but the accountant. But I want you to know that God knows and he sees. Several years ago, there was a young boy that came to me after service and he said, hey, I want to give this. And he showed me this money. Where do, where do I give this? And I, and I showed him the box. And as put the money in there, I was thinking, you know what? Here's a young boy who knows Jesus as Lord. His heart is gripped by him. And I had to ask myself, am I? Is this me? And is it you? Winston Churchill gave this quote. We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And the Lord of our hearts is revealed by the traits in our lives. So if you want to grow in devotion to Christ, you're like, okay, Grant, (laughs) I'm a long ways away from like that widow total devotion. How do you you grow? How How does that actually happen? It's kind of like learning how to play the piano, okay? So if you've ever had the experience, the, the very first thing we start with is middle C, right? Duh. You're right? And you just kind of learn how to push that. But then, you know, you kind of go on from there, and you learn music and theory, and you know how to learn play with one hand and then two hands. I mean, you got ten fingers generally, and, and you learn how to play. And the more you practice and the more you invest in, why, guess what? The better you get at playing music. And I've gone through decades of piano recitals, okay? And I'm looking around. I've seen some of you at the piano recitals too. And, you know, and it's interesting. You've got folks that are just getting started, and they play very simple songs. And then you get some, you know, some kids out there and some folks that are, like, really good, and they're playing, like, these masterpieces. 
And one of the things I've noticed is that there are more and more adults that are learning how to play the piano. And the first recital, they're playing like a very simple song. You're like, Mary had a little lamb, and you're like, great, you know? But guess what? They keep practicing, and they keep investing. And pretty soon, they're playing more and more sophisticated music. And give them a couple years, and all of a sudden, they're playing music that is absolutely beautiful and extremely difficult. That's what it looks like to grow in devotion to Christ. You start by faith in him, and you trust him. You're learning from his word. You're gathering for worship. You're learning to engage and to serve. You have people like, it really helps to learn the piano when you have an instructor. You've got someone to disciple you, someone to mentor you, encourage you, point and teach the scriptures and help you gain a foundation for your life. And friends, when that happens, it's a masterpiece of God's grace. And friends, this woman, this scene right here, this is a masterpiece of God at work in a human heart. It's an unforgettable display of devotion. You see, when Jesus is Lord of our lives, we exercise discernment and we grow in devotion to him. And the Lord of our hearts, he's revealed by the traits in our lives. And when Jesus is the Lord of our hearts, friends, you need to know this. Your life, how you're living, with your kids, in your setting, it's a masterpiece. Let's pray. I want to just pause and give you just a minute for you to talk with God about what you have just seen in his scripture. Where do you need to exercise discernment? Ask God, how can I grow in devotion to him. Lord, we're at perhaps the most important time of our worship of you. That's where we place our hearts and our souls completely open to you and say, God, teach me your way. Fill me with your strength. Help me to live and love for your glory. Help me to rest in your goodness and reflect your likeness. For someone who is here today who's never truly trusted in your son, would they just pray with me and say, God, I need hope and I need help and I need forgiveness. I turn from my sins. God, today I am trusting in your son. I need you to be the Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, these two traits that we see highlighted at the end of Jesus' public ministry, discernment, devotion, God, help us to grow in these so that we will experience your likeness and express it and live lives that truly are honoring and loving you. And so we pray as we come into communion, in Jesus' name, amen. And at this time, we're going to uh, share in communion. If you did not get one of these little cups as you walked in, just put your hand up and one of our ushers will make sure that you have one. Uh, Before we go into communion, I want you to know that you do not need to be a member of Fellowship Bible Church to partake in communion, but you do truly have to know Jesus Christ 
as your Lord and Savior. In fact, the Bible warns that if you don't, you should not partake. What you should do is right now you should believe. But in this time of communion, as we've just looked at what Jesus had to say about discernment and at this beautiful picture of devotion, let's remember that everything about us is devoted to him. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, and the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you want to pull back that first foil layer, And take this wafer. And I want you to think of Jesus and his death on the cross. He says, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So if you want to gently pull back that second layer. And I want you to think of Jesus and his death for you, the forgiveness that we have in his name. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink the cup and eat the bread, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord.